people. I do think there's a kind of need to find our way to appropriate forms of reconnection in a country that feels just like shot through with division, really kind of living through a cold civil war and sometimes a pretty warm civil war. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. You can't work as co-executive director at MoveOn for over seven years without learning a thing or two about progressive strategy and organization building. My really great guest today, Anna Galland, is exactly the sort of person that I hope to have on this podcast. And since she stepped back from her full-time role over there, she's picked up a portfolio of other projects, but she's also had some time to reflect about the movement and her place in it. So we had a very good conversation, one to which you'll want to listen. So first, a new sponsor, then my interview with Anna Galland. Hey, podcast listeners, do you like learning more about progressive politics? Then you're going to love Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a race-conscious podcast about politics. Join Steve for a conversation that is unapologetic about making clear that the only way Democrats can win is by running towards issues related to race and social justice. Guests have included Stacey Abrams, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, and Michael Tubbs. Fortune Magazine calls it the smartest podcast on race we've found in ages. To listen, visit democracyincolor.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. So, Anna, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Anna Galland. I'm an organizer, progressive strategist, spent a couple decades in and around mass organizations on the progressive side of our political spectrum. And I'm based in Chicago. I have three kids. Beyond my political and progressive work in the world, I'm also a human and a parent. Maybe being a human is obvious, but (laughs) <laughs> it never hurts to remind ourselves. How old are your kids? So I have three kids. I have twins who are 10, twin girls. Uh, and then I have a five-year-old kindergartner who actually, sorry, he just turned six yesterday. I have a six-year-old. <laughs> and my brother has a nine, I guess a nine-year-old and two twins that are about, they must've just turned seven. It's sort, of, sort of the reverse of mine. Yes. And, and it's been a busy number of years. So I have some sense. Yeah. I'm very dialed into the way in which the crisis of childcare and schooling during the pandemic has affected people's lives because my home has been turned into a sort of a one giant we work slash child. <laughs> <laughs> if you could see my living room, it's got four different workstations in it. Well, at least you found a way to charge rent to your children. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I did it easier. I have two daughters, but we split them by seven years. So we haven't had the pileup of children at the same time, for better or worse. Um, So, But go on with your biography a little bit. Tell me about where you grew up and the kind of family that you came from. Yeah. So I grew up in a politically minded, socially minded family Although my parents are not themselves activists, they're the kind of people who read the paper, watch the news, talk about where we're at in this moment 
in the big picture. My grandmother actually was one of the first women to be elected to the state legislature in Virginia. And one of the stories that I really appreciate about her time in the public sphere is that she was involved in both work to desegregate the Virginia public schools in the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education and in some of the earliest gun control measures in Virginia state history. And she faced a lot of blowback. My dad tells the story of them sitting around eating dinner in their home in Alexandria, Virginia, and hearing someone fire a shot through their front window, Um, which is a reminder to me, actually, that even when our politics feels hot or feels dangerous or feels scary in new ways in recent years, it's always been hot in various ways. It's always been um, contested, right? Like our, our politics is a history of conflict in various ways. And folks on the front lines of those conflict, especially folks who wear different identities, can be more or less at, at risk. Anyway, it's a dark place to start, but I grew up just outside Chicago in Evanston, Illinois. I moved back there after many years away. I live right down the street from the house where I grew up. Uh, this gives me access to plentiful, free, high-quality childcare in the form of my parents who are still there. <laughs> As an undergrad, I went to Brown University. As an undergrad, I was kind of a foot soldier in student activist campaigns. I was on the student council to help enact a need-blind admissions resolution. I hung posters for our anti-sweatshops campaign. I knocked on doors in the 2000 presidential election in Pennsylvania, along with a delegation of students. But I wasn't an activist leader, I wouldn't say. When I graduated, I graduated into the aftermath of 9-11. And to some extent, I was really galvanized by that historical moment. I ended up taking a part-time organizing job that became my full-time life, um, working with a Quaker-based group called the American Friends Service Committee. And I spent two years effectively as an in-the-trenches anti-war organizer, building up a new regional program for the American Friends Service Committee organizing vigils, organizing marches, organizing rallies, staging visits to members of Congress's office. And it was, in some sense, a kind of freewheeling training in the nuts and bolts of community organizing. And that was the second Iraq war. Correct. That was the run up to the the particular Iraq war that started in 2003. (laughs) Not to laugh lightly about it, but you know, it's sort of a grim... One of our biggest mistakes as a country. Yeah, catastrophic, right? And um, it was a, I think I was really immersed in an understanding that my own government could do terrible things that would harm our own people and people living elsewhere. I think we're still living in the long aftermath of the damage done by that invasion. There are different lineages in organizing life. There's PERGs, there's labor, there's, you know, different student activist groups on campus. A Quaker-based, faith-based, coalitional community organizing training is not uh, a linear training. (laughs) They basically gave me a list of people who had ever done something in Rhode Island or southeastern Massachusetts uh, in the 60s and 70s and said, maybe some of these people still want to come and do something. It was a really interesting trial by fire to figure out how you connect with people, how you build a base of support, and how you get active at a community level in such a way that you can make everyone more powerful together than they would be by themselves. I guess what I'm curious about is, 
you know, you come out of Brown with a history degree. Not everybody goes into activism. What was driving you in that direction particularly? Hmm. I'm an earnest soul. I feel, uh, you know, that quote that the point of history is not merely to observe it, but to change it. I, I feel sort of heartbroken about uh, human suffering. And I don't just want to put band-aids on things. I want to find ways to improve the conditions in which we all live together. I'm sort of obsessed with notions of interdependence, that we are all bound up together, that we rely on each other. Again, I think the Iraq war moment made me feel like, wait, I need to do something. It's not, I, I don't just need to kind of flow in behind the existing uh, work. I need to help figure out how to make this terrible thing not happen and then stop once it had started. And as you took those initial jobs, which actually your whole career flows from that initial impulse, I assume that you must have gotten the feedback from that work that made you want to continue in it. Is that right? Yeah. There was a really interesting moment that I still think of sometimes when it's almost like a switch went off where I flipped from being a participant and an observer to being an actor. And the moment I remember was uh, in November or December of 2002. So we were right in the thick of the run-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in March 2003. And I was organizing with the American Friends Service Committee based out of Providence, Rhode Island. And I put out a call for a vigil that I was organizing with a couple of other people in Providence. And we put out this call and we arrived at the, I think it was the Baptist church in downtown Providence. And that place was packed to the gills. There were people in every rafter on the sort of upper level of the church. And as we went through the program, I realized, oh, wait, I helped make this. It wasn't going to happen if I hadn't sort of put up the antenna for that electricity to ground. That's a very powerful experience to have, to realize that the world doesn't just kind of go on, but you can help shape it. Uh, that sounds a little abstract, but I think maybe you know what I mean. I, I think I do. I think when I've talked to various activists, sometimes it's been the first time that they felt efficacious in the world, you know, like they managed to get the sidewalk repaired somewhere. And I think that sounds like it's your, it's your sidewalk repair. It's your cry that you've amplified with a lot of people to try and stop this war, which you don't stop. Right. Though, so, right. You, and so how does that measure of your and other like-minded people's collective power affect you as you see, well, we might be able to fill this church or we might be able to have a movement, but we don't necessarily win. Right. Yeah. I think that's just the right question. So for me, my experiences learning to be a community organizer in the context of that anti-war moment and movement led me to think we need to do more than march and build community and lobby. We need to change the people who are in power. So that led directly to me seeking out ways to get involved in the 2004 presidential election. I left Rhode Island. I went out to Oregon, which was at that point still a swing state no longer as a swing state in presidential elections, but at that time it was. And I got involved as a youth state program director doing young voter engagement, basically, for the election with an outside 501c4 or 527 organization that I think no longer exists called the Young Voter Project. 
which was housed by 21st century Dems. And I had a crash course there in what the mechanics of an electoral campaign look like. Building a list of targets that you're going after, logging carefully the number of contacts you have, managing a much bigger staff than I'd ever seen in the context of community peace movement organizing. I had 60 staff, I think, that cycle, and I had never managed so much as one person before. One of the lessons I actually took from that experience later on was how much we don't always support our younger organizers and managers in movement and political work. We throw them in the deep end and it's great training for them, but it doesn't always lead to the best outcomes in the moment or the best experiences for staff working there. I think the experience of seeing both sides of the coin, what does it look like to build a resolutely 501c3 uh, social movement program? And what does it look like to build a nuts and bolts electoral mobilization program ended up being great training for what I was recruited into, which was move on. And I spent almost, I think I'm going on 15 years of my life, longer than I've known my partner, longer than I've been a parent, um, in and around that institution, which became really kind of a vehicle for my own training, my own growth as an organizer and mobilizer, and uh, is a, an institution I'm still committed to as the board chair. Like I'm, I still haven't quit, move on. I have, uh, over the course of this podcast, talked to Joan Blades and to Ann Lewis, who was the CTO there, and to Ben Wickler, who was at the time, the, I guess, the DC representative, and Patrick Kane, who did some of the technology, and some other people who, who've been involved in Move On over time. And I think the story is out there, but your story, um, tell me about like what was Move On when you first came in? How did you land there and what role and how did you find a path inside that organization? Yeah, I was hired into Move On as a deputy field director during the Iraq war era. So Move On as an institution, I think is very interesting because it has had different identities in different eras. And one of its strengths is this kind of capacity to renew and reinvent itself as a vehicle for popular mobilization and mass national organizing in different political and social contexts. So when I was there, it had passed through the um, reaction to the era of Newt Gingrich and Republican overreaching Congress, which is where it started in the late 90s. And it was well into being a vehicle for mass mobilization to try and help stop the Iraq war. And in fact, that's where I first bumped into Move On was back in Rhode Island, being invited to a vigil on the steps of the Rhode Island State Capitol in Providence and seeing a thousand people there and knowing I was probably one of two or three people who were being paid in the entire region to do any sort of anti-war organizing. Who are all these people? These are not folks that I know. And so understanding that Move On had this capacity to find people and connect them to a community that had shared values and offer them a pathway to be powerful together was very moving. It was one of the reasons I joined up with them later. So I, again, joined up with Move On in 2007. Um, so in the aftermath of the 2006 elections where Move On had played a key role as a sort of outside of the Democratic Party vehicle for voter mobilization. I think Move On ran a bunch of big 
volunteer phone banks as the primary kind of field tactic in that election for its own program, but a bunch of other stuff too. Um, a big campaign to try and tell the story of the profound corruption of Republican officials in Congress. So there was a big campaign called Caught Red-Handed that included paid advertisements, a big field program, um, and again, this massive phone bank that made something like $6 million calls in the days before an auto dialer could speed up that process so dramatically. Uh, So I joined in 2007 and was plugged into Iraq war work. And then very quickly that became work on the 2008 presidential election where move on ended up endorsing after John Edwards dropped out and made the kind of consolidation of move on members support possible Barack Obama and I helped to build a kind of mobilization, sort of a a volunteer recruitment engine that plugged people directly into the Obama campaign's excellent people-powered work in that cycle. It's funny, if I think back, my work with MoveOn has traced the arc of the late Bush years, the entire Obama era, the Trump years, and then now whatever we're in, which I don't know if we can call the post-Trump era yet. Not really. <laughs> Not yet. Unfortunately, that's part of our work. Very few people who join an organization as a field director type person end up running it. What was it about you that ended up with that kind of elevation? You would already run this group with 60 people as a as a kid, basically. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a few years into, I mean, and, but that's a lot of, uh, that's no, fairly normal in the political space, but move on to an organization that's been around since like 98, right? How do you find your way to a co-executive directorship? Yeah. So I came into move on as this deputy field director role, um, in a, an organization that I think is very, um, has made some really fascinating choices over time on how to kind of architect itself. So it was a very small staff. I think when I joined, it was only 25 people and, I really was trained up on this way of national organizing and mobilizing, harnessing technology that I just think is a fascinating place to learn and play and grow. So when I joined staff, I learned how to program in SQL to run queries on our database. So I was running my own SQL queries to pull lists and do my own targeting. Um, There was a kind of spirit of a geek organizer that I learned on that I think still exists, although maybe not in that kind of condensed and distilled way. And my experience was basically being encouraged over time to take on more and more interesting problems. So when I felt like I'd run my course at Move On after the 2010 elections, I still remember the executive director then, Justin Rubin, said to me, okay, I hear you that you're done with the project you're working on now, but what's another interesting problem that you want to tackle from within Move On? And that's a great charge to give someone who's an energized and capable staffer. And I said, I want to try and figure out how we can make Move On's tools useful for state and local organizing. Since in 2010, as we could end up in the same place in 2022, there had just been a terrible midterm, which had resulted in paralysis in Washington, D.C. And so the organization's capacity to organize people to drive legislative change was blocked or going to be blocked for a while. And 
there was a lot moving at the state and local level. So I ended up um, using a tool that was half built and was on the shelf, which was the member petition platform then called SignOn, which is sort of like a change.org or petition site kind of utility that allows members to create their own petitions. Um, I worked with a wonderful team to finish developing out that tool and figure out ways to share it with move on members to harness their own ideas and insights about what needed to be a campaign rather than having a kind of professional staff doing all the work. And this is part of a broader trend. I think that we've seen of towards user generated content, towards putting the power into the hands of individual activists, not in the hands of professionals only that became a kind of mini rocket ship inside move on. It became the growth engine for move on's list uh, it generated tons of really powerful and interesting campaigns at the state and local and corporate and cultural levels. And from there, there was a moment where Justin was ready to step back and they asked me to step up. I said, I can do this, but I have six month old twins. I'm not going to run this thing by myself <laughs> because we're going to need to make a lot of changes for this new political moment we're stepping into for the second Obama term. And my longtime collaborator, Ilya Shaman, who had done a tour of duty inside Move On, uh, was willing to join me as my co-executive director. So that's actually something I feel strongly about is that we should be experimenting in more places around our progressive and political ecosystem with shared leadership models, because these are hard jobs. It's hard to run a big organization with a complex set of capacities and a staff with lots of righteous feelings and opinions and all the usual demands that sit on any leader's shoulders. And it's nice to share that load. It also, I think, signals an investment in leadership that is not the kind of cult of one individual. It shows that we are all part of carrying this thing forward. And that worked incredibly well for us. We ended up, I don't know, tripling or quadrupling the budget and the base of sustaining donors. The staff grew by 3x while we were there. We fundamentally rebuilt the insides of the organization, the tech stack, the operations approach. We were able to really innovate some new capacities like the video lab. We did a really big video persuasion program that ended up being the biggest purchaser of Facebook ads in the weeks leading up to the 2018 election that was really built around member-generated video content. And importantly, we had impact on all sorts of things in a very rough ride during the Trump years, um, ranging from immigrant rights to defending access to healthcare and much more. So I'm very proud of the work we did, but I kind of want to trace it back to the fact that I didn't try and hold it all too tightly. Part of the approach, which again, I think I was encouraged towards in my earlier years of Move On, was to really understand that... um, we have so much wisdom, but only if we're all in it together. And it can't actually be one person's show um, for an organization like Move On or any other one to succeed. I heard so much in what you just said, because I had asked a question about like why you get elevated. And I think that answer is partially that you were among the few people in the country at the time who was learning that kind of digital act. Activism. It was new. People were learning it in lots of different places. You were one of those people. Move On had been, you know, 
on the front of that in some ways. Part of it was that willingness of the leadership to give you space to tackle something that took off, that did well, that sort of like internal entrepreneurship that you exhibited there that paid off for the organization and for your experience and probably your credibility inside the organization. People see what what you're doing. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons for people because I talked to a lot of people who are frustrated within organizations about how do I move up? How do I get the credit I deserve? How do I advance my career? It's great when there's that combination of the willingness of an organization to allow talent to flourish and the ability of a person to take advantage of that moment. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's. I think that's insightful, um, including on that point about internal entrepreneurship that I think I would, I would hazard that we're in another moment that requires a lot of innovation. I mean, just to take one example, the way that we are doing voter contact and volunteer engagement, building around this huge ecosystem of SMS contact and peer-to-peer SMS programs already feels like it's pretty saturated and an un satisfying experience all around, both for the volunteers and for the folks getting those messages. What's the next iteration of that? We have to actually invent it. Someone has to figure it out and build it and play with it. But I think too often our organizations, broadly speaking, don't have quite enough bandwidth for reasons of resourcing or how we're structuring our teams or something to give people space to play, right? I think it's such a dire political era that it can feel counterintuitive to defend the need to experiment with stuff, including stuff that'll fail. There's some very strong cultural DNA inside Move On that I think, you know, I learned phrases like we should be having joyful funerals. When we try something and we build something, it doesn't work. Let's let it die and don't don't feel bad. Feel like it's great that we're taking risks. That, that's a I mean, that that came out of the entrepreneurial background of the founders, I think, and 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 other people that were on early and you do lay down DNA and that's super important in building an organization. One of the things I want to ask you about is this partnership with Ilya that you mentioned, because, you know, when I when I'm in conversations with other entrepreneurs about partnership, it's often the most difficult subject and it doesn't always work, right? I'm trusting you that you did make it work. I've heard nothing other than that, right? How did you divide up the work? How did you collaborate? How did you make that shared responsibility something that was productive? Mm. Yeah, it was a phenomenal success in my own estimation. And I think in his, um, we had, I think, one retreat where we were kind of bickering. And I felt for a moment like the dynamic was mom and dad are fighting. But over the course of seven years of co-leading, we had these incredible outcomes in the work that I feel very proud of with an incredible team that we were lucky to build and work with. And we grew with, and I think learned from each other. So when people ask me about setting up shared leadership models, I often say, number one, my first rule is that there can be no arranged marriages, right? Sometimes boards will have a search for a new executive or a new leader, and they'll end up with two great candidates and say, let's smush them together. And if we put them together, we'll have the perfect leader. And that's not how this works. Um, You have to fully opt in to 
a partnership that is as intense as a shared leadership arrangement. In our case, we both fully opted in. No one pushed us or encouraged us. And we were clear that either one of us could run the institution on our own. And we were each able to have areas of specialty that could help complement the other. And I think getting that balance right is really important. I focused somewhat more on fundraising and on external facing work, but I was also deep in the guts of the innovation work and the sort of tech rebuilds that Ilya led more on. I think we're in the midst of a still kind of amorphous um, period of trying to figure out what our work is going to look like next, right? Not just the great resignation, not just the ways in which there's these beautiful labor uprisings around the country with Starbucks workers and others showing that they're going to take a powerful role in their own workplaces. But I mean, in the work of social change, that so much of which lives inside of institutions that have, you know, staff and hierarchy and 401ks and processes and rightfully have a professionalized kind of context. I think there's a really interesting body of work that many people need to be engaged in right now to figure out how we build organizations that can really lead and deliver impactful, innovative social change work for the whole that can protect democracy in the U.S., that can renew democracy, multiracial democracy in the U.S., um, that can deal with these kind of underlying crises of severe and racialized polarization and the crisis of civic trust and social trust that we're living through and the kind of gaping economic and social inequalities of our moment and the public's resulting, I think, from all of those underlying conditions, openness to authoritarian forms of leadership. Those are all profound challenges. And I didn't even say anything about the climate crisis yet, right? That Part of addressing those challenges is going to be figuring out how organizations and companies and other kind of networks and coalitions work together effectively. And doing that requires us to figure out how to move beyond our own individual egos. So part of it, honestly, is just making space to share space with others. How did you think about the role of Move On when you were running it? It is a very unrepresentative institution in a certain way. Like it is self-selected progressive activists as a membership. And the people who go to work there are not representative of the country. But there's a conviction, I think, about the path that the organization wants to take the, the country. And it fits in among a very complex ecosystem on the progressive side, which also fits in across a even more complex political system that encompasses both right and left and everything in between and beyond on the wings. How did you think about politically the role of this big, but also small entity? Yeah. I mean, there's a real audacity in the early vision for what Move On could be that I find very moving, that some individuals, some brilliant individuals, Wes and Joan and the early cohort, Eli and others, um, said, look, we are individuals, but we want to change the country. This is not working. And that um, instinct that individuals can work together with the help of technology to address a fractured and broken political system, the early kind of instincts within Move On were essentially 
not apolitical, but certainly kind of cross-partisan. It was a broad populist instinct that politics, as people saw it then, was, was broken and needed fixing. And that this outside movement force, again, fueled by technology, could be part of the fixing. Um, I think that Move On has always been and remains under the tremendous leadership of Rana Epting, who's the current ED, um, a kind of conduit for democracy in action. It's a member service vehicle. It's an entry point, a mass scaled entry point for political and social movement engagement. And that's an important piece of the broader movement ecosystem. There are Move On members in every one of 3,000 counties or county-like units in the country. So you go to the tiniest little island, you know, off of Maine, and there's a Move On member there, or the uh, most rural county in Alabama, there's a Move On member there. And there's something important in that reach. I've thought about Move On in my own experience as sometimes best suited to be a mobilization engine as a bulwark against the far right. And that in times where there's not the conditions at the movement level for mass mobilization against the overreaches of the far right, and I would say right now is a tricky moment in that spirit, it's a little harder to get your hands around what move on is and can be. How do you think about the, the kind of balance between idealism and pragmatism? when you are making decisions about how to throw your weight. I mean, that, that came up over and over, at least it appeared to from outside. Like, how do we endorse in a presidential primary? Who do we collaborate with? How much do we uh, protest the administration, the Democratic administration? There's all those calls that get, get have to get made. How did you, how did you make them? Yeah, there's, it's such an interesting question. If you're engaged in political work, What's your ideology? Where do you compromise? Where do you draw the line? You ask that question every single day for anyone who's in that space. Um, I have found it really helpful and a grounding approach to have a base of members that you are accountable to. I think it's much harder to be an organization that's basically a lobby shop that doesn't have real people that you have some mechanism for listening to and staying accountable to. So for example, any endorsement process, Move On has always come back and asked the members whether you should endorse and then who, whom to endorse. That sounds like it might be a bit of a dodge to the prompt, but it's actually, I think, really important because it's a structural answer. One of the other phrases I really like that Move On has often used is um, that the organization has strong vision and big ears. So the, the big ears are listening to this mass of progressive-leaning individuals with a range of diverse backgrounds all around the country. The strong vision is a dedicated staff team saying, where do we need to go? How do we actually undermine the MAGA threat to our democracy? How do we deal with the subverting of confidence in our elections? How do we deal with this abuse of executive power? And then come up with organizing vehicles that people find helpful. Where an example might be the nobody is above the law you know, contingent protest organizing infrastructure that Move On and Public Citizen and another number of other groups built during the um, Trump years, or the Real Voter Voices video persuasion program that allows people to say in their own words why they're voting and then put that content in front of the right people. Did you ever feel like I personally am out of step with the membership? Mm. Oh, that's such an interesting question. I do think that 
organizations that represent in this, you know, diverse democracy, organizations that represent a multiracial base, which Move On does, most of us who work in politics do. I think there were times when, especially around this kind of rising racial justice movement, this insistence on the dignity of every American, including especially Black Americans who have been denied so much for so long, that there were times when I felt that my own or perhaps members of my staff's prioritization of civil rights work, of human rights work, of racial justice work might be a little out ahead of where members were. They might be more focused this week on healthcare and we want to do something on the aftermath of Trayvon Martin. But honestly, it was always within the range of, do you have enough to work with, right? Like as an organizer, you're looking for, is there a cohort I can work with to get something powerful done? And I've never felt like I was out of step with that check. Political leadership, whether it's elected or in an organization, there's always that challenge of, of you know, I remember reading biographies of, of Lincoln. You can't get too far ahead of who you represent, but, but you also can't get too far behind. You lose their support. And navigating that, I think, is a political challenge always. That's right. I, I do also think that there have been times when I couldn't see the way to make, hmm, how to say this, that there have been times when uh, members at Move On or with other organizations I've been involved in desperately wanted to see a change on, for example, big money in politics. And I, as an organizer and as a strategist in that moment, couldn't see the path. So there may have been a disconnect in that moment where Members wanted to do something, and I'm sitting there thinking, honestly, I don't see how we get this done in the next six months. And I think it's really important to have integrity as an organizer, as a leader with a platform, to never overpromise to your people what you can actually get done together, because that's that's a trust burner. And we're living through a period when the decline of social trust, the decline of trust in any institutions or anything outside of your own kind of most narrow narrow sphere is so corroded that we we should not be participating in eroding trust in any way. Yeah. Uh, did you find it easier to run the organization when Democrats had power or when Democrats didn't? Yeah. Um, Move On is in the unfortunate position of uh, having more material to work with when things are really bad. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I was wondering that. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, it was sort of constructed for an era of mass opposition to the overreaches of the right. Some of the work I think Rana is doing that's so powerful is re-architecting it for a period of governing power. Right. Um, even if you have a narrow governing window, as Biden has now, there's essential work to do to help propel legislation forward, to help to win the battle for hearts and minds. That's hard. That's really hard work. And to be honest, I don't know that. A broad progressive movement has the right capacities, infrastructure, strategies, stories to win the peace, uh, as it were. Um, and that's the moment we're really in, right? You see a a strong reflex and a skill in critiquing, say, the Biden administration, but less in promoting the many good things it's doing. Totally. Um, 
And look, I think we exercise our muscles of accountability so much that we can sometimes let our muscles of righteous celebration atrophy. And no one wants to be part of a movement that doesn't celebrate. No one wants to be part of a movement that doesn't have joy and doesn't have a sense of pride in what we've accomplished. And so I do think it's been a challenge to all of us to find ways in a very dark period to righteously sort of note and mark places where we've actually done something, you know, beautiful. Having childhood poverty last year was a massive deal, massive. The policies that led to that were thanks to generations of advocacy and power building. I don't want to say that no one talked about it. Lots of people did. There was lots of good work being done to make sure that folks were clear. Poverty is a policy choice. We can do better. When we do better, let's note it and let's claim that power. But I I just think it's a very real challenge for us to collectively solve. You know, how do you build progressive community organizations and um, other vehicles that can shape the terrain during a period of a narrow governing window like right now? Because if we can't figure that out, we're just going to slip right back into opposition weaker than we were in the last wave. I've had a number of conversations over the last couple of years with people who raise money for progressive causes, donor advisors on the left that kind of do the political work for people with a lot of money. I actually was just talking to one yesterday and he asked me, where would you, Nathaniel, want money to go? I found it a hard question, a unfortunately hard question. I have things to say, but not a lot of sureness about what the best things to do were. What, what would you answer that question if someone asked you that? And I know you have some that you do some work in that area. but Yeah, um, it's funny. I feel that there is a simultaneous need in this moment to shore up the powerful institutions that we have built at the national level, especially, but also at the state level that are the kind of immune system for our democracy, right? Some organizations that I love include the National Domestic Workers Alliance and Color of Change and Mihente and Move On and Indivisible, groups that have one foot in community organizing work and one foot in political power building and manage to bridge that divide with their constituency, with their members, with a national aspiration, but in many cases with some amount of local and state-facing work. Those groups need to be shored up. Many others like them, right? Like any, um, I think, clear-eyed assessment of work in this moment that is needed would say democracy in the U.S. is is threatened. I don't know if the right way of understanding it is that democracy is on the line or democracy is on the ropes or whatever, but we're in a, a real tricky period. And it's certainly highly challenged. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I mean, there, I mean, there are, there's just like the DNA in your organization. It's woven throughout the threads of, of everything. The assumptions that most people make are in this country are very democratic in the small D in the, in the way that we solve problems all over the place. But there is at, in the Republican party, in the Trumpist movement and in few other places, some really scary 
ideas. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And we're not as immune to them as we thought we might be or thought we should be. I have to be careful with the we there. Many we're vulnerable as a country. Yeah. Yep. We're more vulnerable as a country to some of the more dystopian political outcomes than many people thought. Um I so I feel like my own sensibility in this moment is where can I support democracy building in the US? And that's necessarily a multi-front endeavor. It's going to mean engaging with and activating social movements to be successful because one court case or one policy brief is not sufficient given the magnitude of the threat that we face. And I appreciate that you mentioned the culture of small D democracy. I feel that part of the work we need to do is helping equip people and support people who are doing the work of building a culture of democracy at every level. It's good news in a way because you can be a policy wonk or you can be a community organizer at the block level or you could be a journalist and there's all sorts of good work to be done to build and renew a multiracial democracy that delivers an economy that works for everyone. Like there's plenty of good work to be done. I think one of our challenges is to help narrate across the whole so that people see that their contribution is adding up to change for everyone and not just kind of pushing that Sisyphean, you know, rock up the hill. It seems to me it's got to have been a fairly profound move in your life to leave being executive director, even if you've moved to be chair. There is a difference between being in it with power all day long, day to day, and not. And when you cede that voluntarily, it reshapes your life. Tell, tell me about that decision and how it's gone for you. Well, I, I definitely didn't think I'll step back from move on and then step right into a global plague, which will mean I'm mostly a teacher for a year or part of a year. Um, it's not in this sort of personal plan book. Um, yeah, but no, you're very right. I, um, I was very lucky to lead this wonderful organization for seven years and have, you know, interesting work there for years before I made the intentional choice to step back with Ilya at the end of 2018, in part because it felt like we wanted to leave in the strongest possible moment, right? Like I've seen so many organizations bungle leadership transitions because they waited until things were at their worst to sort of choose or force some sort of change. And, you know, I feel very strongly about that institution being an important institution and knew that the internals were very strong. The finances were in wonderful shape. The team was excellent and was ready to keep going for another year or two to get through the 2020 election. Um, so I guess as a, as a principle, it's like, if you can transition your leadership of an organization in a moment where it's best configured to set up the next person for success um, and don't BS it, right? Like people will tell that story even when things are a mess, but you should get it right. Like leave things on good terms and hand it off in a shape that someone has the best chance to succeed. Um, yeah. People don't do that for a host of reasons. Like, uh, they don't think they, they don't see what they can do next. They, um, they don't want to lose, they have ego involved in it. They don't have confidence that they, that this isn't the biggest thing they'll ever do in their life and they'll never find anything. I mean, all of those feelings, I'm sure you had them. We all have them. Tell me about how it felt to you as you did that. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it felt, 
you know, my, my birthday cake in, um, 2018 was made by a friend of mine and it had a picture of a voter, you know, that I voted sticker that says I voted. It was the design of that sticker and it said, move on dot mom. So I definitely had a lot of identity kind of bound up in this organization and in my work building over so many years. So it was certainly a change, but it's one that I was ready for. I, I really am a believer in the, um, the idea that your life has chapters, right? And I'm now in a chapter where I have three kids and I want to be involved in movement work from a range of different perches, not just from one institution for now. And you write those chapters. They shouldn't write you. That's right. Yeah. If they write you, you might be in some trouble. Like <laughs> ideally you, you get to say, all right, I want to turn the page. Um, yeah. And I, I feel also that um, there's a kind of, for me, I always want to have a kind of presiding theory of the case of what I'm doing and have my work be situated inside that theory of the case, if that makes sense. So during my early move on years, my theory of the case was, in part, I don't know enough about how you mobilize and organize mass national movements that can change our politics. And I want to learn here. And then it was, we need to elect Obama and help him be a transformative president and build the outside movement that can help propel that. And then it was, well, crap, stuff in Washington is stuck. Let's try and build powerful movement infrastructure at the state level and at the local level to help get us through this period. And then this vehicle, Move On, is still very helpful in doing that. And during the Trump era, it was, oh, shit, me and my friends are right on the front lines of a very scary moment in our history. And we need to say no, a giant no to all sorts of stuff that is threatening our communities, threatening the democracy. And to be very honest, I think we all need a pretty radical humility for how we renew and reinvent our work for this era. And so part of my own um, work right now is answering to my own satisfaction. What's my theory of the case now? I, it's some version of democracy building in the U.S. is necessary and in the U.S. specifically, not just in some country elsewhere where we say, oh, they clearly have an autocrat in charge and don't have independent institutions. But no, democracy building here is vital work. And the thing I'm still trying to support in various places and figure out for myself is what is that going to look like for the next 10 years as things are accelerating and changing so much in so many ways? So tell me about that portfolio of activities that you've embarked upon since leaving the executive directorship over there. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing a couple of different things. I'm advising some um, wonderful philanthropists, major donors, um, including I'm lucky to be a fellow at a, a sort of off the radar um, uh, operation based in New York called Propel, where I'm the senior democracy fellow, which just means they're very kind to keep me around so I can think and write with them. I have dived in at key kind of juncture points, like after the 2020 election on coalition work to help defend the results of the election and ensure that Trump actually left office. I'm advising and coaching and supporting a couple of different groups that I love, including the Poor People's Campaign, um, which is associated with the Cairo Center. It's Reverend Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris's group. Um, I'm still supporting Move On, of course. Um, and I've been lucky to be pulled in, in a range of different cases to help with sticky 
governance transitions, executive director quandaries. I feel like I'm a little bit, perhaps prematurely, in a stage of my life where I sit in a rocking chair and give advice to people. (laughs) I'm sort of joking there, but sort of not. I, I sometimes inhabit that same chair, <laughs> and I don't know if I merit it, but I land there from time to time as well. I talked to Sarah Williams at Propel on this podcast. Yeah, she's beautiful. And so tell me what it's like working with them and a couple specifics of what you've been up to under that umbrella. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I've been trying to find time to do, which I didn't have time for in the era of um, being in the executive director seat, um, was... Um, is writing. So uh, we've written a couple of pieces together about um, especially encouraging other people with the means to donate to pro-democracy work, not to let up, not to get distracted, not to sort of get fired, right? So one piece of that work is just writing. Then there's also, you know, conferring on strategy for what is, if you know, if an individual has the means to give some money somewhere, where do you give? Like what? It's a big question. If you're like, I want to change the country, this doesn't feel right. Helping narrate what our opportunities are and connecting people to the right place is I think important work to do. Of course, I also think it's vital that we have organizations with the capacity to support themselves in other ways besides turning to foundations or philanthropy, other sections of philanthropy. And so I always encourage the EDs and leaders that I talk to to both, you know, find the resources you need to do the work that you want to do. But if you can, you should be also actively building a small donor base of the sort that, you know, move on and a small number of other organizations have because that, you know, ability to cover your operating expenses with a base of small donors is the most precious gold that exists in anywhere in movement organizing. You are far less beholden and at the mercy to a small number of people or a person. Yeah. And it's just ideologically better too. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, a friend said to me the other day that every organization has to decide who they're polarizing against, which I thought was a great frame. And one thing you can polarize against is capitalism. Another thing you can polarize against is the far right. Another thing you can polarize against is the kind of uber wealthy or the system as it stands, which is related to, but different than capitalism only. I don't know. I sort of think all those things sometimes deserve to be polarized against. So I think when I advise people where they want to give money, part of what I ask is like, what is your theory of the case? What are you trying to do? And what do you think is most a problem in the country as it stands? There's a part of me that gets nervous when we on the left polarize. Mm, yeah. Right. I, I, I probably have a very similar list of villains, <laughs> uh, but there is something about pushing us apart that is also hazardous and I don't know, corrosive and groups on the left do that with big hearts and good intentions, but you can view it as part of the problem too. How do you think about that? Oh man. Yeah. You're, that's a chord that um, I've really been playing a bunch. Let's see. I would say number one, a friend, an old friend of mine once said to me, Anna, you're a lover, not a fighter. And it was in part sparked by him seeing me um, doing some public facing media work in the 2016 
primary where there was a fierce pitched battle. And I was part of that battle to try and elevate the, the story, the movement, the political power of Bernie. I think there's just a real kind of um, need for principled fighting when people's lives are at stake, when things aren't breaking through. I mean, the kind of real transformation that's underway around racial justice and against white supremacy, like that didn't result only because of people talking and being harmonious together. That's been a fight, right, to unlock that whole conversation. And it's a righteous fight. And I think there's also transformation that we need that is in a different kind of cast than than the battle. I think there's a real hunger for harmony at a kind of cultural level right now. I think even on the ideological left, people are so tired of fighting. They know that we're kind of all not safe when we have this level of fracture, community and political fracture. And so a thing I've been thinking a lot about and don't yet have a kind of satisfying, you know, little quip about is like, what is the role of kind of a fierce principled muscular empathy in this moment to help us unlock the crisis we're in? Too often, unfortunately, I think empathy gets used in a way that's power unaware. The kind of simplest way I can think of to say this is if you were being locked up, would you have empathy for your jailer? Well, I guess maybe, but you're still being locked up by them. They still have power over you. So we have to be thoughtful, I think, about bringing a power lens and a kind of structural analysis to any conversation about empathy And, but there's something there that we're all really yearning for. Like people feel, I think, in need of healing, in need of connection, in need of some form of reconciliation if it's available. I do think there's a kind of need to find our way to appropriate forms of reconnection in a country that feels just like shot through with division, really kind of living through a cold civil war and sometimes a pretty warm civil war. The... War in Ukraine has provided a really different lens on the world to our country in a short period of time. You were talking earlier about protesting the war against Iraq and having people in churches, and we were allowed to have movements in this country. The state might not like it, but against Vietnam, against Iraq, it's been very potent politically here. When you look at the way Russia or China handles dissent, people can't hold up blank pieces of paper without being arrested right now. The systems, I mean, for all our faults, the systems are just substantially different and we are way more free. And I think we forget that a lot when we look at our faults and there we could list them for, for hours. And it, it reminds us how interconnected we are. Like we, the results of this war over there at the very worst could be nuclear bombs going off and ruining our cities and disabling civilization in this country and, and everywhere in Europe. That consequence is just so far beyond the conceivable other bad things we fight about, that it, it kind of focuses the mind a little bit. How do you think about progressives and their relationship to this moment 
which could be viewed as this battle between authoritarians and their systems and Democrats and their systems, and where we have people in this country, and it's hard to even sometimes sort out which side they're on. Yeah. Yeah. What are you thinking? I I think that's such a deep question. I think, um, okay, I'm reminded first of a quote by, I think it's Solzhenitsyn, that the line between good and evil doesn't run between any nation or between any state. It runs right down the center of the human heart, which is kind of an amazing uh, line. But the reason I think of it is it's not that we're in a moment where for progressives or anyone else, the lens should be oh, it's uh, Russia versus the US, or it's the West versus the X. I think we're in a moment where it's multiracial, inclusive democracy versus a kind of right-wing, ethno-nationalist, authoritarian movement, right? Like what Putin is doing is in alignment with Bolsonaro. It's in alignment with Orban. It's in alignment with what much of what Trump believes in and was trying to do. And the way that those dictators, those autocrats appeal to their followers and the way that they're crafting their own vision for the world is in conversation with a base that itself is talking to each other across social media, not just within countries, but worldwide. And in the same way, I think those of us who are committed to preserving and enhancing the open, free, inclusive democracy that we have actually but have never yet fully realized the dream of too, right? It's a both and like we have something beautiful and worthy of protecting here. We also have something that needs to be and must be and can be better. The situation in Ukraine, one thing I think it throws into sharp relief is we're in a clash of worldviews moment, but they are not neatly cleaved between two countries or two empires or anything like that. One of those meta worldviews or mega worldviews is the one that I'm most invested in growing and stewarding and tending to, which is, again, the, the word that I find most useful is democracy, like an inclusive, multiracial and just democracy is what we need. And what we're seeing is how vicious the threat from those who don't share those values can be and what it can look like. And the horrible thing is that even if a country is full of people in alignment with you, they could still almost require to be defeated militarily in order to free the people in there to be on your side. It doesn't do us much good in the short run if there's a bunch of good people in Russia, which there are, of course, if they are completely powerless to alter the current course of that country. Yeah. One thing it does make me think, I mean, I've been deeply moved, like just to my core by the footage of Russian anti-war protesters specifically, because what they are doing is um, so much riskier to themselves and their families than any protest I ever marched in. It's a reminder that none of us can afford actually to turn away from public life and from political life. I was born in 1979. I grew up in a context where even as there was all sorts of war making that the U.S. was involved in around the world, my life was defined by domestic stability. And I just was remembering the other day that in my own high school, I don't remember a single protest being held sort of by students in the high school. I might've missed it, but there've been 
maybe four or five walkouts from that same public high school in Evanston, Illinois, in the last couple of years. And so the kind of ostensibly apolitical moment that I grew up in is just profoundly different. And I actually think that's for the good in the sense that um, it was a bit of a mirage that we could all tune out from what the government was doing in our name, or a, a real mistake to think that you could just let politics do its thing and you do your thing. Like we all have a stake in voting, volunteering, joining associations that allow us to express our deepest values and participating in public life. Because if we don't, the thing breaks. Like this democracy does not run on its own. It runs on us. And I think it's actually, we do well to remember that. The people on the other side in this country, the DeSantis's and the Trump's and the Youngkin's and the whole range of Republicans that have kind of gone along with that movement, they also have supporters. They have people who believe in their message. They have political cards to play. They're playing them. They are not wholly illegitimate in that sense, right? They represent something. Maybe it's not something that you like. It's something I don't like. But I think we don't acknowledge that at our peril. And I wonder how you think about what the other side has in terms of how do we beat them? Like, you know, like we have to beat them. We have to win elections. We have to govern and show that our way is better. What's your insight into how we win those contests that are everywhere all the time now and close usually? Mm. I just felt so tired hearing you even put it that way because it sounds so <laughs> overwhelming. But I, but here's what I would, I would um, offer that number one, I have been um, sort of bemused to find myself in certain cases making common cause with very much Republican actors. I had uh, my friend Chris Hayes come and join my seminar at the University of Chicago earlier this year. And he said that there's a popular front against basically fascism or against this kind of violent authoritarian movement that extends from Liz Cheney on the right to Noam Chomsky on the left, which I thought was really great. And yeah, I'm part of that popular front. I think we need that popular front and we can't actually be so disconnected from uh, being in relationship, being in alignment with people that have different ideologies and different commitments that we blow up the possibility of that popular front. So that's one. The Lincoln Project is an ally in that, even if the careers of the people there weren't always where we wanted them to be. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. look, I, I, I both am in agreement with the frustration that people sometimes felt that there was lots of small donor money going towards the Lincoln Project versus the long-term organizing infrastructure that is underfunded and that we need. And we kind of need everyone on the field right now, right? The, we do. Um, to preserve, you know, rule of law and open democracy and enhance its actual commitment to an equitable and just democracy. So that's one thought I have is just um, we who have a progressive worldview need to be strategic about understanding points of potential alignment with people that we profoundly disagree with and seek that out and not blow it up through our rhetoric or our kind of posturing. My pet peeve actually is that you might remember there was this period where people on social media would say, I'm unfriending you if you voted for Trump. 
And I've always felt like, you know, of course, if you need to do that for your own personal mental health or for safety reasons, you do your thing. And by God, that should be a last resort because no one's going to convince each other if they're not in relationship. We need to find ways to stay in relationship with each other across lines of disagreement at the popular level, you know, at the leadership level where possible. Um, I, I feel very strongly about that. You asked what the other side, as it were, sort of has that we should be noticing in, in order to beat them. And I, I do feel like um, something that I have observed in watching the right is that they are very attuned to the possibility of contempt. And they're very good at weaponizing contempt for their own power building that like to the extent that our spaces, progressive spaces exude contempt, we are doing our work wrong. Contempt for someone who doesn't yet know the words for. It's, it's, it is an opening for them to righteously attack us for being that type of people. Yeah. And we, I actually, the, the values that I hold and you know, the overwhelming majority of people who I've ever worked with hold are, we believe in the possibility of transformation. We believe in the possibility that all of us have something to learn and change. And in fact, that's a progressive worldview at its best, I think is a, a, a worldview that believes in the rightness of change and the possibility of change. So when you sort of exude contempt for someone, it says, I don't believe that you are or can be with me. And that just seems like a weirdly self-limiting way of, of being um, for someone who progresses our values. I mean, it seems like as progressives, we are often ahead of the country in some, say, social transformation, you know, gay rights, civil rights, trans rights, you know, like a million different things that people haven't caught up to. And sometimes they don't catch up to for 150 years, right? Like there's some people still fighting the civil war, but none of the battles are ever over. They keep coming back. And, and yet that position that people are in where they haven't accepted the change that you've already accepted if we receive that as you might on campuses now with extreme intolerance, like I have really mixed feelings about that. Like I, I want people to be brought along into this progress and not reinforced in their, I'm not going there. Those people are nasty sort of feeling, mm. you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard. Yeah. I, I find myself, I'm really sitting with this in these couple of years that I see both the value of a very clear line being drawn and saying, look, I won't accept being treated like this, period, and I'm not going to make you feel good about it. I see the the power that that stance, that move has had in our culture and feeling very clear that people always need on-ramps. Like everyone whose mind is going to be changed, myself included, need an on-ramp where you're treated with dignity along your own journey. Back to the terrain I know best, the sort of organizing and mobilizing and organization building spaces, I think we have to pay attention to whether we are offering people points of contact and on-ramps to taking action, learning, growing, being part of something bigger than themselves. The sort of experience of being shamed or shut down is is really potent. And we should like try and 
use it sparingly. It's like very strong. What's the strongest spice we have? That's shame, right? Like the spiciest pepper. You should use it, but like use it as sparingly as you can. If you share my taste buds. We're often in a position where we have a position which is right, but not politically popular. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I, uh, I remember once I was in conversation with the anti-nuclear weapons activist, Jonathan Shell, um, And he said to me, you know what I love about Quakers? Because I was working with the Quakers at the time. They're right like 150 years before everyone else. <laughs> that was so funny. And you know, the, the Quakers he was referring to were not saying, well, here's my position, but I might be wrong. And here, let me try and make you feel more comfortable while I tell you that slavery is bad. So Jonathan's point that the Quakers were right before everyone else probably also didn't mean that they were popular in the moment. And this is something I think many of us have relearned that about the civil rights movement of the 60s, that it's not the case that King was embraced at every turn during his own lifetime. It was only after he was gone that he was lionized so much. What do you do when by your own account, you're right, and others haven't caught up yet, and it's not yet popular? I, I just think we all have to know our own lane or know our own role in the broad ecosystem of social change and transformation. And there are some people who will hold the flame for something when no one else is watching and they're playing their role. And that's not the DCCC. That's <laughs> move on. Right. No, it's the, it's yeah, the lane. Because they have a different job. They have a different job. Yeah, they, have right? a different they, job. they have to win this race now, not uphold this principle for all time or something like that. Totally. I think a lot about knowing what your project is and understanding what other people's project are and being able to distinguish the difference. I think of these women literally against nuclear weapons, they would stage these weekly protests in front of the Rhode Island state Capitol week after week after week. And one or two people standing on a street corner is not, they are right. And other people don't care but they're holding a flame. They're sort of tending an issue. They're keeping that space occupied in a way that I think actually is very moving, even if it's not politically powerful in the moment. And I just, I just have to think that all of us understanding that the way social change works requires different groups and actors to play different roles at different times. Maybe the more flanky groups that are agitating would be more respected by the kind of compromising faction if there was more of an understanding that everyone's playing their right role. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes the righteousness is a necessary ingredient of holding that flame. And I see it that way too. Um, you earlier in this conversation, you talked about sort of still working on the theory of the case for this moment. Tell me more about your thoughts about how you're going after that and how far along the way and what are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, I think all of us uh, arrive at our understanding of reality non-linearly, right? So I'm in a space of lots of conversations in the course of doing work to try and wrap my head around the multi-layered crisis of democracy and climate that we're kind of living through. And I learn in conversation with other people. I'm reading and I guess I'm answering your question as a process matter. I don't know. I'm listening. I'm reading. I'm talking. And I'm not stopping organizing and doing what I can. I have been to some extent part of the turn to the local that I'm seeing many people make. I'm 
active in my kids' school and I'm paying attention to very powerful work that's happening that I'm supporting here in my own hometown of Evanston, which is actually an interesting place in part as a kind of laboratory for uh, racial justice work. There's a first in the nation racial reparations law that was passed here within my own church. Actually, interestingly, there is this congregation to congregation racial reconciliation process happening where I think we may end up literally ceding part of the deed to the church to a, a, a sort of sibling church that was spun out because black people were having to sit in the balcony of this majority white church when it was sort of founded. So I'm, I'm very interested in and supportive of hyper-local work to experiment with what it's going to take to model and to build the kind of durable, progressive governing consensus that we need. What we actually need is fully inclusive, functional democracy that preserves the planet. That's a thing I believe. How do we build that? We work at every level and we experiment and we model. My friend Ai-jen Poo, who is the wonderful um, head of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, uh, said to me that there's different types of power. There's financial power, there's political power, there's cultural power. And then there's a kind of power that is perhaps under-recognized, which is modeling power. So the power of through your example or through the example of an initiative even if it's not to scale, even if it's not fully solving the problems that you're trying to solve, offering a, a glimmer of what we might be able to do. It's moral power. And Yeah, that's another one, right? Yeah. The example she gives for modeling power is a worker-owned childcare co-op in New York that has like 3,000 members. It's one of the biggest cooperatives in the country. We don't have many examples of that, but the fact that it exists is actually doing pretty powerful work to help inspire other people's imaginations. I asked you earlier why you rose up within Move On, and now I can much more clearly understand that. <laughs> I don't think who run organizations who can think about it broadly and articulate it the way that you do. And it's been a great pleasure to talk to you about it. Is there more about what you're doing right now that you'd like people to know? Hmm. My mom wishes I had a, an answer that she could understand better, but my job right now is basically consulting, writing, teaching, speaking, and that means that I'm very lucky to have visibility into a lot of different sort of corners of our progressive ecosystem and really just grateful for the wide range of conversations I'm having that are helping me answer to my own satisfaction the kind of big question of what is to be done. When DeSantis gets elected with a Republican Congress in 2024, or something like that happens, which is fully possible, are the move-ons of the world, the other people that you're consulting with, the progressive ecosystem, are we ready for that? What will need to be done? What was the expression, the velociraptors have found the way to work the doorknobs or whatever? Right. <laughs> Oh, um, well, first of all, let's not let that happen, of course. Um, and that's going to require, you know, the full spectrum of delivering improvements in people's lives that justify their future vote and inspire their future votes for progressive candidates, as well as building all the infrastructure we need and tending all the infrastructure we need for the run up to 2024. 
if we end up in that scenario of another Republican governance at the federal level controlled by the MAGA faction, I think we are pretty clearly not yet ready for that scenario. And the reason is that we constantly need to be rebuilding and re-envisioning the organizations, the coalitions, the tools that we use for organizing and mobilizing and narrating. And this complex moment defined and compounded by the plague (laughs) means that many organizations are kind of flat on their backs. Um, So we're going to need to get up and rebuild and reorient for a different kind of moment. I do think we learned a lot of lessons from the Trump era about just how fragile the guardrails of democracy actually are. And I think that means that in our rebuilding, we should be paying close attention to tending to relationships, even as we tend to those guardrails. Yeah. I sure wish we had done a better job so far of putting more structural reform in place to protect ourselves against next time. There's a lot of stuff proposed. There's very little that's happened, but uh, so it is. Is there a question, Anna, that I haven't asked you that you wish I had? I feel like I want to turn the questions back to you. Being a a host of a podcast, we don't get to ask you some of these questions. Are you going to interview yourself for a future episode or otherwise? If I had your skills of uh, (laughs) of talking, I might try that. (laughs) I don't think I do. What's your theory of the case for this sort of coming period? I think one of the things I've tried to embody in this podcast is that spectrum of people. You put it as a popular front, right? I want to talk to people from the Sanders wing to the anti-Trump Republicans and all of the people doing such important work in between and around and, and from every angle and new lens. And I'm trying to, in my little way, sort of give them a chance to talk about their work. Mm, yeah, It's hard to have a lot of impact as a, as a person, as a single person. Um, and I think you have to be kind of modest about what you can accomplish. I just, I'm in favor of pushing all of that forward however I can. If sometimes I will advise a group sitting in the chair like you, sometimes I will donate a little bit. Sometimes I will connect people together that ought to be connected. Sometimes I will suggest another tool for a progressive software company. It's all of this. And I wish we had a wonderful chief propagandist <laughs> that that really could carry the message in a better way. We don't at the moment. We have lots of messengers. I wish we had a process for picking nominees that was more apt to generate the best person for the job politically and otherwise. We don't. We have what we have. And so, I mean, I'm I'm worrying and working in my way, I guess, in small chunks. That's that's really powerful. Don't undersell that. The only other question I could think of is, I, I just think as a broad movement, we should pay real close attention to what happened after the election in 2020. And so a question I'm periodically asking myself is, what did we learn through that success, through that victory, that we should remember for the next authoritarian attempt. And I, 
I'm specifically talking about post-election as Trump was engaged in this kind of extended uh, effort that had started months and months before to delegitimize the election results and overturn the results and stay in power. And he didn't in part because a broad set of interconnected coalitions, networks, groups hung together and didn't allow the kind of media coverage, the specific movements of people out into the field in response to Trump. It's amazing how broad that was. That that went to military leaders, that went to conservative judges that were advising Pence. It went all across the system and that it required that, that one kind of man's ego and unwillingness to uphold the traditions that Nixon had upheld in 1960 or that Gore had in in 2000, that like, that it's not all just about you. It's about the country and the peaceful transition of power. Hillary Clinton did, you know, like John Kerry did in 2004, like one state was the state, right? And all those people believed they were right. And this one uh, expletive guy can put it all in doubt, like, couple hundred years of democracy. And there were f- just enough people left, whether they were on some election board in Wisconsin, but it's not, yeah, I think it was a success, but it shouldn't have had to be. It shouldn't have and had to it's going to have to be in a different way next time. Right. That's right. I mean, the, the way I think about it, I think we can miss the inspirational and profound unity that existed within that popular front, within the ranks of individual activists who were ready to march but held back so as not to sort of set off street fights, the individual messaging discipline that you saw from many, many, many individuals and organizations to narrate that the voters decided that Trump lost, that this is over, and to not allow a head of steam get built in the popular press to the contrary, that that discipline, that commitment, that courage from individuals as you noted, at the level of county boards in some of those key states, the courage and leadership of state leaders in those places who were committed to the rule of law and actually delivering what voters decided. Like that all worked, that held, which doesn't mean that the system wasn't gravely threatened, but it does mean that we can prevail when things get real dire. And I think it's important to hold that and hold on to that heading into 2024. Well, that seems like a good note of partial optimism (laughs) on which to call a day on this interview, but I enjoyed it so much. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I appreciate you very much. The discipline of hope is one that we're all going to need for the coming years. So that's what I'm taking forward. Okay. That was Anna Galland, currently chair of the board at MoveOn. Anna is at AnnaGalland.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.